behalf of uh, Institute for Science and Spirituality. I'm uh, Dr. Jyotiranjan Beria, Jyotish uh, Das. I welcome all the participants to today's uh, meeting. And I also warmly welcome today's uh, guest or speaker, uh, Dr. Howard J. Resnick. So uh, we'll just wait for maybe two more minutes uh, so others also join. So uh, we'll start at uh, 7.33 p.m. Indian time. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, so welcome once again, all our participants and uh, also today's uh, speaker, Dr. Howard J. Reznik. So uh, before you start uh, today, uh, I just want to mention that today is the second session uh, of the series that we are doing, uh, Where Does the Conflict Really Lie? That is a fundamental question we want to ask. And in that uh, last time, last Sunday, uh, we discussed about uh, is atheism really rational and natural? Uh, we discussed many pros and cons of atheism, whether it is really a philosophy in a proper sense. And today, uh, uh, we are ready to delve into the details of uh, whether science can uh, rule out uh, the existence of God. Religion says there is God and science, uh, uh, it seems that uh, it kinds of rules out the possibilities uh, that, that religion is uh, posing before us, that there is a God, there is a God. So, so to enlighten us, uh, we have with us uh, Dr. Uh, Howard Zereznik. So I'll just uh, very briefly introduce uh, today's speaker. Uh, we already had a um, quite some interaction last time. So Dr. Reznik, uh, also uh, known among uh, the devotional circle as Hridayananda Das Goswami, is a distinguished teacher of uh, ancient Bhakti Yoga tradition of India. Uh, he has written and taught over uh, 50 years throughout the world. And most notably, he is the first Westerner in the history to successfully translate the canonical uh, Vaishnava text, the Bhagavad Puran, right from within the tradition itself. And uh, Dr. Resnick uh, holds a PhD in Sanskrit and Indian studies from Harvard University. He specializes uh, in the teaching of uh, history of philosophy and religion within South Asia. Uh, he has also published many articles, many books, uh, and uh, he is a very prolific uh, uh, author. Uh, he, he, currently, he's working uh, on a book on Mahabharata. I uh, hope it comes out uh, very soon. Uh, okay. And also, uh, he's, uh, he's, he has lectured uh, at many leading universities throughout the United States, Europe, India, South America, and, what, uh, and everywhere practically in uh, the whole globe. And uh, he's conversant in uh, as many as uh, seven languages. So, so today we are extremely fortunate that uh, Dr. Reznik uh, uh, agreed to answer our queries so we are extremely delighted uh, to have Vedananda uh, uh, Goswami, Dr. Howard J. Reznik with us. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I know it's uh, early morning at your place. <laughs> for us, it is <laughs> evening. So to the participants, uh, good evening. And to our speaker, uh, very good morning. <laughs> so I think we can right away start from questions. Uh, is that okay? Of course. Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. 
so uh, i would say uh, that participants uh, they can uh, type their questions uh, in the chat box uh, and i will pick up some of the some of those questions and just to get started maybe i can uh, start with some uh, basic questions i can start answering and meanwhile the participants uh, would type the questions in the chat box and we take it up okay uh so uh, maybe uh, if you could kindly tell us uh, uh, as the today's topic is uh, whether science rules yeah. or god so could you kindly tell us uh, i mean what is really yeah. science and what is yes. yes first of all if you take science in the narrow sense of the word uh meaning physicalist or uh what sometimes can be called uh, materialist science then from the point of view of serious philosophy academic philosophy the question would be seen as a bit absurd and uh that attitude that uh that uh, material empirical science is the gatekeeper of objectivity is actually a very anachronistic view it became popular uh in western philosophy and in, in literally over 100 years ago and well over a half century ago the academic atheist philosophical community rejected it as sort of a silly position to take for various logical reasons it's self contradictory it's um because for example just quickly if you say that um that uh science rules out the possibility of god that's not a science statement that's a philosophical statement and actually actually um the real issue we're discussing here is philosophy of science because let's say you do an experiment let's for example microbiology or quantum physics or whatever and you find some data uh that's all you have you simply have what you believe is reliable information about some aspect of the physical world why that happens for example newton talked about gravity among obviously other things so why is there gravity why for example is there even such a thing as a gravitational field we can imagine a universe in which you have large physical objects or small objects that do not exert gravity so why does nature have that quality science cannot answer the why question science can answer the how like this is how it works or this is what it is but how it got there the, the idea that um the idea that um science can explain everything take darwin for example darwin was operating with a uh what we would now consider to be a somewhat primitive understanding of biology and microbiology and so microbiology has exponentially uh advanced since the time of darwin i mean darwin's you know a century and a half ago and so we now know that the basic process by which things work biologically is not simply by the mechanics of it it's by information transfer and so so therefore the idea that that this that say our bodies which are you know you could say millions of times more sophisticated than the most advanced 
computers. It's like saying that we now know so much about computer technology, computer science, that it rules out the possibility that people build computers. I mean, that's how silly the idea is. If I go to a computer store, and uh, let's say I go to my local Apple store, well, actually, as, as a guru and sannyasi, I shouldn't endorse any brand. But let's say, let's say if I go to a computer store, there's no computer builder there. You go to the store, you see tables or shelves, you see all these very impressive computers. You don't see the people that build the computer. So to say that computer technology has advanced so far, it now rules out the possibility of computer scientists would, I mean, that would be idiotic. And so the idea that the extremely, because basically if you say that uh, science rules out a God, and never mind the word God, because a God is a loaded sort of religious jargon. Let's say a designer, someone that actually an engineer, tech, someone that actually designed the, the world as we know it. So, um, Science is basically claiming that empiricism is a closed causal system. That means that all the relevant causes can be explained within the empirical system. That's a philosophical claim. That's not a science claim. That's a philosophical claim. So when you make claims like that, you're not speaking science. You're speaking philosophy of science. And it's a metaphysical claim. Because when you say there cannot be any other causes operating that cannot be explained. How do you know that? How could you possibly know that? How could you, if you study, let's say a computer, let's say you reverse engineer it, you take it apart, you study every moving part, every non-moving part, so that you know everything there is to know about the mechanics of the universe, uh, of the computer. How could that knowledge tell you who designed the computer? How could that, so, so there's nothing you learn in computer science that will tell you the person that designed it. And how would you know by knowing the computer whether someone, so also, it, I mean, there's a basic rule of logic that in an area where we do not understand, we try to understand by analogy. For example, when this uh, COVID virus uh, appeared and we didn't have a vaccine for it, so the first thing, so who did they call? They didn't call, let's say, car mechanics. They didn't call uh, people that, you know, build hearing aids. They called people who are toxicologists, people who deal with viruses, because even though this was a, a new kind of virus, but you start from your information base, people that know about viruses and you go from there. So in the same way, Let's say there's a situation where we don't know who built the universe or we don't know if someone built it. So what we do is we first look at situations that are relevantly analogous, such as, for example, how in this world do very, very complex, sophisticated designs appear? And in every case, it will be someone built it. So we move from our knowledge base, we try to tentatively move toward an area where we don't understand. So what science has done, they've completely ignored that obvious logical move, and they've done something absurd. They've said that in an area where we don't know, we assume something of which we have no experience, 
something for which there are no analogies, something which to, to our knowledge has never occurred in the history of the world. And that's what you analogize from. And so this is nothing but frankly, stupid vanity. And, and it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, there's nothing logical, there's nothing philosophically sane about this. And so the very question, does science rule out God is, uh, whoever asks a question like that obviously has never been, uh, has never taken a philosophy course. Or if they did, they must have slept through it. So we can move on here now that I've uh, bashed <laughs> that kind of <laughs> So, uh, but still, uh, uh, I think uh, <clears throat> often, uh, I mean, uh, the, even the hardcore practitioners of science, uh, even my own friends and colleagues, I see, uh, I mean, they really uh, do not uh, say that, uh, I mean, when you talk about creator of any object, uh, end up to, uh, whether you take a teleological thing or whatever. So, I mean, uh, anything has a creator or something has originated from something. So uh, that's okay, acceptable for them. But the problem is uh, when you claim something metaphysical, so there the their problem lies. So they say, how do you say that uh, there is some metaphysical? Yeah, but you see, the very question is based on an absurd philosophical assumption. And basically what we're, which I'll explain, basically what we're dealing with here is fanaticism. In other words, if you look, forget the content of people's beliefs. If you just look at their psychology, let's talk about psychology. What is the difference between a fanatical religionist, a fanatical Christian, or, or a fanatical person in some other religion that says, this is the only way. No one comes to God except this way, which is obviously comically incorrect. So what is the difference psychologically between saying that and, and, and a born-again empiricist, which is what I call them, you know, born-again fanatical empiricist saying, you know, this is the only way. No one comes to objectivity except by this religion. Actually, when, when social scientists study the, the psychology of this fanatical claim, uh, they say it's actually a religious claim. It has all the psychological and philosophical characteristics of a religious claim. And even Western philosophers, you know, the, 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 some of the top Western philosophers like Searle and others, they've because he's an atheist materialist who says he thinks there's nothing but material mechanisms. But even he said, well, honestly, that's just my religion. So to say that you can, you know, you can only know things objectively by empiricism is a religious claim. It's not a philosophical claim. It's not a science claim because there's no scientific experiment that rules out God. Since God is a metaphysical entity, a physical experiment cannot possibly study it. So first of all, in terms of methodology, in terms of uh, experiment design, it's absurd. It's just completely foolish. It just sounds like someone who psychologically or neurologically is wired for fanaticism and has no clue about what philosophy is and, has, and doesn't even know that this person is making a philosophical claim. You know, I compare it to psychology. You may not study psychology, but you have a psychology. 
No one can say that because I don't study psychology, I have no psychology. And if you don't study psychology, you're probably not going to be very aware of what your psychology is. And you're probably not going to be a very, you know, live your human life in a very enlightened way. If you have no grasp of your own psychology. And so my experience is there are these scientists who say things like that. They, they have no clue as to what, that they're even doing philosophy and they have a philosophy. You cannot live without a philosophy. I'll, I'll explain why. Because every time you engage in an intentional act, every time you do something on purpose, every time you exert your free will, even if your choice is not to do something, because that's still an action which requires energy and requires conviction not to do something. So every time you consciously exercise your free will, you're doing so, doing so based on an implicit set of values. Because on what possible basis would you do something or not do something unless you think that it's better to do this than not to do it, or it's better to do this than to do the other options, or it's better not to do this than to do it. So every time you say better to, that means you have a value. That you, you think it is in your self-interest to do this rather than that or not to do something. And so therefore, because everyone, if you had no values, you could not engage in intentional behavior. You could not intentionally do anything. You could not get out of bed in the morning. You could not continue drinking water. You, could, you, know, you couldn't do anything. And so therefore, everyone has this set of values. Everyone that is capable of free will and choosing behavior. Everyone has a set of values. Your set of values is your philosophy. Now, if you don't even know, if you have no awareness of what your philosophy is, you're probably going to say very foolish things, such as science can show that there's no need for God which philosophically is something that philosophers would just laugh at. Uh, so uh, if you permit, uh, can I ask one more thing? Uh, yeah, thing? sure. Same price. I'll throw in another question. <laughs> okay. So uh, often, often uh, the uh, practitioners of science, they say when it comes to the question of philosophy and when we charge that, uh, I mean, science doesn't have a proper philosophy to back it, so often they come up with the idea of a methodological naturalism to say that this is our philosophy that, uh, I mean, we follow a scientific method, which is based on empiricism. And then, uh, I mean, uh, we talk about only natural objects. And that's fine. That's fine. But yeah, that's fine. But don't claim you know something you don't study. If you say... If someone says my personal interest is empirical science, fine. It's, you know, India is a free country. You can, you can, or America. That's fine. If someone wants to be, you know, sort of small-minded and explore only one small part of reality, that's fine. It's not very intelligent, but you certainly have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. What you cannot claim rationally is that, you know, this this born-again empiricism, this evangelical empiricism. For example, India is theoretically a democracy. You know, America is theoretically a democracy. So um, that's based on the belief that there's a certain equality of people. Why are we against racism? Why are we against sexism? 
Why do we oppose the idea of totalitarianism? It's based, actually, it goes back to John Locke. It goes back to other thinkers, philosophers. The idea that, uh, you know, people, there's certain equality among people. The idea that that freedom is somehow the natural state of, of, a, of an, a conscious human being. And therefore, the government, in order to restrict that freedom in various ways by passing laws, because every law restricts your freedom in some way, even a traffic light. Let's say you live in a village. Let's say you live in a village where there were no traffic lights. And then the village grows, it starts to become a town. And so they start to put in stop signs. They maybe put in a traffic light on the main street. Now, when the decision is made to put in a traffic light, there's more security, but less freedom. So even the decision to put in a traffic light is based on a philosophical judgment, a value judgment that we want more security, less freedom, or we want more freedom, less security. We don't know, we don't want the government, let's say reading all of our emails. And the government can say, well, but you know, you'd be safer. So even something as banal, even something as simple as deciding whether or not to put a stop sign in a village is a value judgment based on a philosophical position. And so again, what you have is you have some materialistic philosophers uh, who are making philosophical claims and they have no idea they're doing so. They think they're they think it's scientific to say that only empiricism, which is absurd because empiricism won't give you democracy. Empiricism won't give you equality. Empiricism cannot make an argument against racism. Empiricism cannot give you an argument against genocide. There's no scientific reason not to commit genocide. So I think we need to look very clearly at the kind of brave new world we're going to get with fanatical empiricism. In fact, when Darwin's theory started to become popular among intellectuals and sort of kind of, I don't know, uh, emotionally disturbed people like Thomas Huxley, when these things started to become popular, uh, some people said we want social Darwinism. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the name of one very big fan of, of Darwin, Adolf Hitler. Hitler thought that he had a Darwinian project. Because after all, let's say, for example, let's say forestry, the science of forestry. When there's a forest fire, uh, it actually in some ways makes the forest stronger because it burns off all the weaker specimens. I was in uh, British Columbia in Canada where they have these great forests. And uh, I was told that the forests are becoming sort of genetically weaker because the government suppresses and prevents forest fires. So you could make a, a very strong scientific argument that for example now, I mean, scientifically, scientifically, it would be very good environmentalism to kill about 3 billion people. Or maybe, I mean, why not, you know, go for the something really cool and kill four or 5 billion people? There's no scientific reason not to do that. 
Because if you say we shouldn't do it because it's evil, because blah, 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 that's all philosophy. That's all metaphysics. That's not empirical science. So I think you need to look very clearly at the kind of world we would live in if everyone buys into this idiotic idea that the only objective claims are made through empirical science, which, by the way, philosophically is, you know, over half a century no one takes it serious anymore among philosophers because it's so stupid. Why not? Why not say that uh, as long as birth control devices are used, used incense should be legal. Incest. Why not say genocide should be legal? Why not have survival of the fittest? You want science? You want science? According to evolution theory, science is survival of the fittest. So why can't rich people? enslave poor people. Why not? That's, that's called survival of the fittest. It's simply good Darwinism. So if somehow that kind of world where genocide is just, you know, a scientific, it's just a scientific a good thing to do sometimes. And where, for example, you know, incest with birth control devices is nothing wrong with that. Or we can, you know, genocide, anything you want. Enslavement, slavery. Rich people should, and powerful people should be able to enslave poor people. Why? It's natural. In fact, what, what if powerful people just castrate all the less powerful people? So that only, you know, it, it's probably good for the gene pool. You, you know, you get a lot of, you get a really robust gene pool. So that's the world you're talking about. Uh, okay. Uh, I think for the moment, if we uh, keep aside the sociological and moral principles, so just for the, uh, I mean, somebody may say uh, that, uh, okay, it's fine that I accept religion and there we talk about God, but in science, whatever we claim, uh, we do prove actually. But However, who the hell cares about science when it comes to God? The, the point is, you see, you are making an assumption, which is absurd there. I know you're just doing the... Yes, oh, <laughs> yeah. The point is, I for me, it's absurd to say that I have to be approved by empirical science to make my theological claims. Why? My experience with scientists is they are, you know, most of the scientists I've met are very... Have, have very little clue about philosophy or theology. So why in the world would I want their approval? It's like saying that, you know, I, I, I can't chant Hare Krishna unless a fanatical Christian gives me permission. Why do I want the permission of fanatical people before I do what I know is actually rational and beneficial? And something which is proved to me every day. Every day, it's proved to me that, let's say, Krishna consciousness is rational, beneficial. Every day, it's proved to me. So why in the world would I want permission or approval from someone who knows nothing about philosophy, knows nothing about God? Why would I want that person's approval? And I brought up the points of genocide and enslavement because... No one waits for scientific approval. Everyone says, you know, we're all equal, therefore democracy. 
equal justice under the law. No one wants empirical proof of that because, in fact, there is no empirical proof of it. There is no empirical proof that we're equal. There is no empirical proof that we should have justice. There is no empirical proof that we should not commit genocide. That's why I brought those points up. So if in the most important things in our lives, like our political system, our social system, our moral system, our laws, our judicial system, if in the most important areas of our life, no one is waiting for permission from empiricists, why should we wait for permission in pursuing our spiritual lives? In fact, if you take seriously things like equality, like justice, like, like human rights or animal rights, if you actually believe those things are important, then you live in a, you, you live in a bi-dimensional universe. You live in a universe in which there are real metaphysical things and there are real physical things. So that's the fact. The fact is that the overwhelming majority of human beings including the overwhelming majority of people that go to college, including the overwhelming majority of scientists, almost all scientists, in fact, in their real life, live in a bi-dimensional world. Scientists have families, they have children, they don't want their children to be, you know, culled, to be killed, they don't want, they want justice if they go to court. So in fact, Scientists live in a world in which there are real metaphysical objects. But because they're untrained in philosophy and don't know what the hell they're talking about, and they make, they're making fools of themselves, they say things like, you know, scientists says, well, you know, I can't accept God unless, it's, unless you prove it empirically. Well, why do they accept justice when they go to court? You can't empirically prove that. Why do they expect the government to keep their, you know, someone from breaking into their home and murdering their family? Why do they demand justice? So they're demanding something which technically doesn't even exist according to their pseudo philosophy. So we have major hypocrisy here. We have major ignorance. We have people who are making philosophical statements but are very, very ignorant about philosophy. And no intelligent person could take this seriously. Right. Okay, I think uh, there are enough questions. I can uh, start asking. Yeah, we can jump into the questions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, there is a question from uh, Aparo Paila, if I pronounce it correctly. Uh, so he says, or she says, uh, who created God? Uh, are we humans uh, <laughs> or God created us? Kind of, uh, is it not uh, asking about God? I mean, talking about God, uh, imposing all qualities to God, is it not an anthropic principle? I mean, uh, one second. I'm gonna, yeah, please. I know. Um, <laughs> good questions. Uh, I guess we have a real devil's advocate there. Um, okay. First of all, the idea of who created God, which is always. I mean, atheists always think that's a real clever response. <laughs> you see, but that, again, their lack of philosophy kind of trips them up there. Because when you ask the question, who created God? 
that question makes an unproved and unprovable assumption. And that is the assumption is, which is unproved and unprovable, is that because in this world, we see nothing but what philosophers sometimes call contingent beings. Contingent means dependent. Like for example, your existence is contingent upon your parents. If your parents never existed, let's say we're talking biologically now, then, um, then you wouldn't exist. Or for example, say a mountain. As we know, mountains have lifespans. You know, it's geology. And so, and that's what geologists do. They study mountains and they say, well, this mountain kind of was born or began growing at a certain point. And for example, the United States, uh, two of the important mountain ranges are the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains in the West and East respectively. So all the geologists say that the Rocky Mountains are kind of like a, uh, a, a you know, much younger mountain range that's still growing whereas the Appalachian Mountains are much older and are kind of, you know, they're sort of in, in a, I don't know, geological retirement home. And so, so therefore, um, so everything has causes in this world. However, if, how can you assume that that principle of causality, of necessary causality applies to non-material things? That's just an assumption. And actually it's a philosophical assumption. And I might even say it's almost a religious assumption. So it's like, for example, the soul. Krishna says in the Gita, as we know, that never was a time, was there a time when I did not exist. Natwam, nor you. So therefore assuming that metaphysical objects have exactly the same characteristics as physical objects is a philosophical assumption for which there's absolutely no basis or evidence. And in fact, Aristotle, who was a great philosopher, and also really, he's one of the, he's one of the, I can't say father of science, well, that sounds very patriarchal, but anyway, I guess since he was anatomically male, I can say that. But he was really kind of one of the main fathers of, of science. He was, unlike Plato, he's really into like biology and botany or, you know, he was really into the physical world. But even Aristotle, who's famous for being more interested in the physical world than Plato. For example, Plato, his teacher said that there's an immaterial eternal soul in the body. Aristotle doesn't really want to have non-material souls. So he says, well, the form, the soul is just the form of the body, you know, the form somehow the, basically he's talking about the, the, the information which is shaping the body. But even Aristotle admitted, even this worldly Aristotle admitted that there must be, in his words, an unmoved mover. Because everything in this world is moved by something else. So if you ask the question, why does anything exist instead of nothing? Because, I mean, it's possible logically that nothing ever existed. So therefore, if you ask the question, why does something exist and not nothing? Aristotle said, it is logically necessary 
that anything at all exists, that there be an unmoved mover, or to use the language of Brahma Sangita, an uncaused cause. So, so if you ask a question and, and the question makes unjustifiable assumptions, it's not a valid question. The question itself, yeah, the question itself is an argument rather than a question. Yeah, I just want to add just one point here. Uh, Aristotle escaped kind of uh, the whole question uh, by saying that the world is, this material world is eternal. I mean, uh, so he didn't have to answer the question that uh, the world has origin, but instead, as we know today in modern science, uh, the, the world does have a uh, origin. So I think the problem was uh, kind of escaped by Aristotle. Which uh, is... <laughs> okay, I'll reply to that. Um, Aristotle obviously got some things right and some things not right. The difference is Aristotle did not argue for an eternal world on logical grounds. He didn't say it was a logical necessity. And so therefore I'm looking, it's just like, for example, as we know, it's the most common thing in the world that a scientist makes a discovery, but then in other but then he may make other claims, which just the scientific community rejects. For example, the scientific community basically accepts Newtonian physics, but not Newtonian alchemy. Mm. And so therefore the idea that uh, either it's all or nothing, either everything Aristotle said is true or nothing he said is true is a false argument, just like if you apply that to Newton, or frankly, if you apply it to any scientist. Even uh, Till Newton, everybody believed that uh, the world is eternal. I mean, the Newton's law doesn't assume origin. It's only when it came to Einstein. So there we have a proper explanation of uh, the world does have a origin. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, which, which is an interesting topic, but it is another topic because, right, right. for, for example, we can, we can still use Newtonian physics, for example, to launch satellites, right. but, you know, whether the world's eternal or not. Okay. So, again, it's a very common human reality that all of us get some things right and some things wrong. Of course, as an ISKCON guru, I shouldn't say that about myself, but that was a joke. So, um, but it's just, you know, that's just the human condition. We get some things wrong and we get some things right. And so what we do is we try to assemble all the right conclusions and come to a rational understanding. Thank you. So uh, the next question by Uday Nandipati, uh, he's asking about God of the gaps argument. So uh, maybe I can actually just... it's the opposite. Yeah, the God of the gaps. What, what 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 philosophers are saying now is that what we really have is kind of like the atheism of the gaps or the science of the gaps. <laughs> I mean, because if you, I mean, I mean, the God of the gaps. Let, let's say you're building a house, and you have uh, there's a missing part here. Let's say you're assembling a computer, and then you find a piece. Let's say you're assembling a computer or you're assembling anything and there's a gap and you find a piece that perfectly fits there, is that, is that a problem? I mean, does that mean that that particular piece is obviously not the right piece and the proof is it perfectly fits? And so, and so the argument that got of the gas, it's it, not only that, it, what everyone is trying to say now is we have the science of the gaps 
where every time you can't explain something, you just invent something, whether it's, you know, string theory or this, that, you just, I mean, that's how science operates. That whenever there's a question you can't answer, you say, okay, what puzzle piece would fit there? And so it's very interesting that this blatant hypocrisy, that when science tries to fill gaps, they're being rational and objective and admirable. But if a theologian does exactly the same thing, then it's bad. That's not a level playing field. And, and, and actually what philosophers, even atheist philosophers are saying now, is what we really have is kind of like the science of the gaps. Because they're inventing different theories. Because that's what they do, you know, whenever they can't explain something, they just imagine something. But they're allowed to do it. So we don't have a level playing field here. I can add one uh, statement. Yeah, please. Yeah. So when I was a student, a PhD student, so there was some uh, statistical uh, uh, fluctuation in Large Hadron Collider. And then uh, some news came that uh, they have discovered another Higgs boson. And uh, maybe within just say two fortnight, more than 700 theory papers were written just to explain that uh, there is something. But later it was found that uh, that was just a fluke. I mean, just a statistical error. <laughs> so, but what about those, all those theories? Those, all those fabricated theories were accepted as legitimate scientific uh, discussion. But when it comes to uh, theology, philosophy, so then uh, people have objections. So that's a ironic hypocrisy, I would say, as you said. In the beginning. Yes, yeah, no, very good point. And these are typical of the objections of fanatics. For example, if you have some religious fanatic, say, let's say a Christian preacher in India who's criticizing Hinduism, for example, uh, you're not going to expect a very rational, objective, fair critique, save the Bhagavad Gita, and you really probably won't get one. And so these arguments are polemical. They're not rational. They're not, they're not serious philosophical objections. They're, it's, just, it's just polemics. Yeah, often uh, people uh, talk about uh, the Occam's region. Although originally I believe Occam uh, never talked about, uh, never advocated atheism. He was kind of thinking that uh, Considering God is the minimal uh, set of argument, but instead, uh, but nowadays the current practices people talk about uh, when uh, science uh, they say that we don't really need God or any kind of metaphysical reality. Well, but but yeah, but but people that say that they're frankly they're not very intelligent because Oakham's razor doesn't mean you cut your nose off because you actually need your nose. Right. So. Oakham's razor, in fact, I mean, it, it's a complete misinterpretation of, Oak, of, of what Oakham actually uh, said and what he meant. Oakham's razor is uh, the, that entity should not be multiplied beyond necessity. So let's consider that entity should not be multiplied, even conceptual or theoretical or analytic entities, should not be multiplied beyond necessity. So then the question is, can you adequately, properly, reasonably, satisfyingly explain reality without God? And the obvious answer is no. 
So therefore, if you apply Oakham's razor, it doesn't cut God out any more than Oakham's razor cuts out, you know, both your kidneys or your or your lungs or something. Because in effect, in fact, uh, we cannot explain the most important things in our life without metaphysics, without the spiritual. You can't explain why it really is your duty to protect your family. Why is it really objectively your duty to feed your children? Is it really your duty not to kill other people? So we know all these things are true. And, and since you cannot explain them empirically and all these pseudo explanations, because people that didn't kill their children, uh, you know, had reproductive advantages, which is complete garbage. Because actually, what we know is that scientifically, if we kill all the weaker humans, that's what Hitler wanted to do. Hitler thought he was a Darwinian. I mean, all the people who are, let's say, mentally disabled, kill them. That's what Hitler did. All the people who, let's say, are antisocial in some way or tend to get into fights, you know, well, maybe we'll keep them because fighting is good, you know, or, or maybe every fight should be to the death. Maybe boxing matches should be to the death. Then we'll only have, you know, the, the top boxers. And that's what gladiator sport was. It was to the death. There were no rules. I mean, it's not, you, you know. So, again, uh, Oakham's razor cannot eliminate God because then we can't explain the things that are most important to us. I mean, the average scientist, if you say, okay, uh, if you continue in your scientific career, we're going to kill everyone in your family. Or if you get another job, we won't kill your family. I mean, I think it's safe to say that an overwhelming majority of scientists will save their families and not do science. When it comes down to it, therefore, they value something metaphysical over their empirical investigations. Not only that, not only that, why do science at all? Because again, every time you do something intentionally, it's because you have a value. Values are metaphysical. So scientists say, well, just for the love of learning, but that's not empirical. There's no empirical entity called a love for learning. So what we're dealing with here is massive hypocrisy, massive hypocrisy. And if we try to eliminate uh, the metaphysical on the grounds of uh, science, then uh, we basically destroy the things that we value above science. So therefore, oh, the argument of Oakham's razor is a uh, pathetic misapplication. So often uh, what scientists justify, or even um, those uh, who may not be so well-trained in philosophy. Uh, so the point is, they say, we do practice uh, kind of Oakham's razor in science itself, because we don't really invent uh, many variables uh, to explain one simple thing. We do for- But every, but every rational human being practices Oakham's razor. <laughs> right. For example, when I, in my little, you know, iPhone, I shouldn't say iPhone because as a NISCON guru, I shouldn't endorse any product, but when, when I do my GPS, and it you know, gives me options. Like, do you want to take the long way? Do you want to take the short way? I apply Oakham's razor. Every time you put something into your GPS and you choose the shortest route, you're doing Oakham's razor. 
for example, when I was a student, I applied, I applied, you know, like everyone, I applied to several different schools, graduate school. And I was actually admitted into two different Harvard programs, like independently, in two different schools. One was in the Divinity School, which is more theology, and the other one was Arts and Sciences, Sanskrit, and in India Studies. And so I basically did the math. You know, how many requirements do they have in the Divinity School? How many requirements do they have in the Arts and Sciences? I thought, hey, this is a shorter path. And, uh, you know, life. So I chose the Arts and Sciences program, the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, GSAS, because it was a shorter path. And so that was Oakham's Razor. I mean, everyone does Oakham's Razor every day. Every time you put something in the microwave oven, you're doing Oakham's Razor because I don't have much time. I'm hungry. Microwave. You know, maybe it's not the best thing, but I'm short on time and I'm hungry. Microwave. That's Oakham's Razor. So it's not that the scientists are these heroic, rational beings that we use. Everyone uses Oakham's razor every day. But the point is, you don't, you don't eliminate vital organs. And when you try stupidly to apply Oakham's razor to theology, you basically render it impossible to explain reality as we experience it. So now... Uh... Maybe I can <laughs> just in relation to that only. Uh, so Uday Nandipati is again asking, uh, could you please uh, technically say that God has no source? Maybe he's trying to ask uh, how does God the uh, bringing God into the picture? How does uh, it stops infinite regression? Something like that. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah sure. Because the original question was, if everything that we can experience empirically, let us say, it depends on something else for its existence. Right. Nothing exists by itself. Right. So then one can ask, why does anything exist? Right. Why is it not the case? that nothing ever existed. There is something rather than nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Aristotle, back to Aristotle, you know, his answer was that um, there must be logically, it's a logical requirement. It's a logical requirement that um, that there must be something existing which uh, is self-existing. So it's a logical requirement. It's like, for example, let's say that, let's say you're on a road in India and someone says that if you go a hundred kilometers in this direction, or, or someone says, if, if you go on, let's say if something, I don't tell you how many kilometers, so someone says, if you go north on this road, you will come to Delhi. And so if you, if you go north, and let's say the person is giving you correct information. So if you go north on that road and you haven't seen Delhi yet, then it's logically the case that 
you haven't gone far enough. It's just a logical conclusion. So you keep going. So some things are just logically the case. So because, because things do exist, because a lot of things exist, it must be the case that there's originally something which is self-existing. That was Aristotle's argument. And my argument, my point question would be, why do you, why does someone object to that? Like, what's your problem with that? If someone says, in science, for example, if someone says we have this question, we can't answer it. However, if this particular kind of entity exists, that would explain it. So why would you object to that? Objecting to a possible solution, on what grounds do you object to it? It's about power. It's, it's political. It's not, it's not philosophical because if it turns out that God explains the world, or at least a lot of things that we cannot otherwise explain, if someone objects to that, because then we no longer have a closed causal system. I mean, I'll give you an example of someone who really wants, insists upon a closed causal system, Xi Jinping, who is a ruthless dictator. A ruthless dictator who uh, does not hesitate to uh, aggressively harm other people and other states to get what he thinks he wants. So in China, unlike India, what we find is that the government insists that no one else can have influence in China. Not even Chinese. If you're Jack Ma, if you're some you know, really rich guy, you're starting to have influence. No, only the party, the Communist Party. It's a closed causal system. No one can have significant causal impact in that country except one cause. And so therefore they object, for example, you can't, they object to all kinds of things. Basically, whether it's religion, political theory, business, anything which violates the principle of a closed causal system where only the Communist Party has power to cause things to happen and no one else has that power. So insisting on a closed causal system is in, in the political realm, the typical move of a tyrant, of a totalitarian tyrant. And so if there's a God, then the, the objective study of reality is no longer a closed causal system. And therefore, what we're seeing here is the typical psychology of the totalitarian tyrant appearing as empiricism. I mean, personally, I like science. I love, I mean, I mean, every time. I go to the dentist, I thank Krishna for science. You know, if I go to the doctor and there's something wrong, they say, we can fix that. I am like, I'm very grateful. Very, very grateful. If, if someone takes their children to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, I can, I can save your child. So, so it's not that we don't appreciate science. It's just like, for example, it's not that there are no nice people in China. In fact, there are many Chinese people who are Vaishnavas. You know, there are many nice people in China, but what we're saying is 
that, that the unfortunate thing about China is that it is governed by a ruthless totalitarian tyrant. That's the problem. Who doesn't respect international boundaries and doesn't respect anyone's right to do anything that they don't approve of. So everyone loves science, I think, you know, real science. I mean, we all benefit from it. We all benefit greatly from it. I mean, because of science, we're talking to each other right now. I mean, in the old days, in the pre-digital days, I couldn't have met you. I, I wouldn't have the opportunity to speak to all of you or to you know, hear what you're saying. And so we have many, many reasons to be profoundly grateful to science. But if someone wants to become you know, sort of a Xi Jinping, if someone wants to violate boundaries, epistemological boundaries, if someone wants to brutally put down any field of knowledge that's not under their control, then we oppose it. Because then we're dealing with totalitarianism, tyranny, and nonsense. So real science, I think every reasonable human being should be deeply grateful for science. But, but we don't want a foolish, totalitarian, oppressive, abusive, epistemological tyranny. That's what we're opposing. And just like India doesn't want its boundaries violated, we don't want legitimate epistemic boundaries violated. Thank you. So maybe I can move to the next question. Yes, please, please. So uh, in religion, uh, we do talk about uh, God, uh, but uh, isn't that uh, really bringing us to a very subjective realm uh, where, uh, I mean... Uh, begging the question, begging the question. Religion is not necessarily a subjective realm. I mean, every, anybody can cook up his own way of thinking. That every, yeah, and, 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 and the world is infested with pseudoscience. The point is that as soon as you say that religion is a subjective realm, you are engaged in egregious question-begging, circular reasoning. As we know, there is a massive amount of pseudoscience out there. And every pseudoscientist in the world has a YouTube channel. And a certain percentage of people in the world, and unfortunately, it's not a tiny percentage, believe in pseudoscience. Whether it's in the field of epidemiology, as we know, whether it's, I mean, in many different fields. There is a lot of super pseudoscience, and you know, and there's a there's a, a ton, there's just an unlimited amount of pseudoscience. On, on the web, on the internet, and we know that there are a lot of people who prefer pseudoscience over science. And so therefore, that doesn't prove that science is objective, uh, subjective. It doesn't prove there is no objective science because there's so much pseudoscience. Uh, could you please uh, differentiate between what is science and what is pseudoscience? It's benefit of all. Uh... Sure. Yeah, for no extra charge. <laughs> so within the field of science, 
there are certain accepted principles, methodologies. And by the way, this is philosophy of science, but so among learned scientists, we can say these are the accepted methodologies and these are the accepted principles. So that if someone follows these principles, then we call it real science and get certain verifiable results. Now, of course, we know is they cheat in many ways, but the relevant cheating here is that if someone has a theory, if someone has a theory which puts down metaphysical views, then they rush it into uh, acceptance. I'll give you an example. They're very, very powerful arguments. I mean, overwhelming mathematical arguments to show that the probability of biological forms, you know, living bodies evolving without any input from outside the system of intelligence, that the probability is basically around zero. I mean, there is, there is an, an, you know, literally infinite, infinitesimal probability is infinitely small, but, but the probability is so small, it's ludicrous. It's, it's an absurdity. So that was a problem. So therefore, multiple universes, because if you have, you know, some kind of strength or whatever they call it, if, if they're unlimited universes, it changes the probabilities. And we just, you know, we have the Goldilocks universe. You know, we're just very fortunate. Of course, it, it's still absurd. I mean, it's an absurd. And actually, you cannot scientific, the way you can scientifically prove that uh, two parts of hydrogen, one part of oxygen make water, you can't prove in that way that there are multiple universes. And so what science does is they relax the requirements for proof if something helps to fortify or defend their hegemony. It's just like in a country, let's say, ordinarily you can't just walk around shooting people. But if it turns out that someone was a terrorist, let's say, and was trying to commit a terrorist act and some citizen just kills that person, that person is a hero, not a criminal. And so what you have is you have a normal set of laws and then under special circumstances where there's special danger, then the, the laws are relaxed. And you can do things and they're declared to be legal, even though under ordinary circumstances, they would not be considered legal. So in the same way with science, science has certain requirements before you can say you prove something. But if a particular theory opposes religion or defends the, hege the he hegemony of science, then the rules are relaxed. And ordinarily things that would not be considered science are rushed into approval. So, but, so let's say, not talking about that for now, because I mean, that's obviously hypocrisy. It's obviously political. It has nothing to do with science. It has everything to do with the lust for power. So, so if we put that aside for now and say legitimate science, when they're not cheating, and, and of course, there's all kinds of cheating. Like, for example, 
obviously red meat is a health disaster. Obviously red meat, I mean, there's just overwhelming evidence coming out. There's just so, the evidence is piling up that eating red meat is really bad for you. But the meat lobby, you know, the rich people who kill innocent animals to produce red meat, they have their little scientists for hire and they come up with pseudo studies to, to muddy the waters and confuse the issue. So whether it's the lust for power, whether it's the lust for money, everyone knows about the deep corruption in the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma, big pharma and so on. So science is rather easily corrupted, whether it's about power, whether it's about money, whether it's about position, you know, you need to publish a paper to get this really lucrative position. So you somehow get the results you want. So if we can put all that aside, the massive corruption in science, the fact that all scientific experimental proofs published in referee journals, it turns out only 50%, turns out only 50% of them could be duplicated. In fact, it came to the US Congress. It's actually a concerned national problem, the high level of cheating in the science community. Why? Because there's so much money and power involved. So for now, if we can put aside for the moment that massive corruption within the scientific community and just talk about, let's say, uh, what we could agree on as real science. Let's say they, they really do it right. There's no cheating. There's no, uh, you know, uh, moving the goalposts. They really just, it's just good science. And there is good science. There's a lot of just good science. So we can do that. We can talk about certain methodologies, certain requirements, the rules of the game. It's like in cricket. You know, if someone hits a ball and someone says that doesn't count and someone says it does count, there's rules. And then, you know, they have cameras and you go and you look at it and you slow down the film and then you decide whether or not it counts. So in every human endeavor, there are rules of the game. So, um, but the rules of the science game enable certain discoveries, but those very rules make it impossible for science to speak legitimately about God or spiritual things. It's not just that we say they shouldn't talk about it, the rules of science forbid it. Let's say, for example, you're playing a cricket match and you bring onto the field this machine that pitches a ball at, say, 200 miles an hour. That's against the rules. You can't do that. So the rules, the internal methodological rules of empirical science forbid science to speak about God. And therefore, they are violating their own rules hypocritically, foolishly, irrationally. Their own internal methodological rules forbid them, forbid them to make statements about the existence of God. So can I interject something here? Yeah, jump in. <laughs> so uh, I was reading a few days back about uh, Stephen Jay Gould, 
so he says oh. uh, when it comes to uh, talk about the relation between science and religion or science and spirituality he says uh, they are two non overlapping magisteria they don't really talk to each other because yeah yes. him, uh, science is the study of the nature natural world and religion is uh, talking about metaphysical reality but uh, when we reflect our uh, ancient scriptures we do find statements about natural world so i think uh, those portions of uh, uh, the scriptural uh, text must uh, compare to with scientific discipline uh, okay okay but then again you know as there's an old saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander and so if we have these two magisteria what it means is that scientists cannot make statements such as evolution occurred without any divine intervention because if you say evolution occurred without divine intervention that's a metaphysical statement what you can say in your empirical magisteria what you can actually say is that evolution occurred period you cannot say it happened by itself because that's a metaphysical claim so if they're if they're not going to cheat if everybody's playing by the same rules you know same thing cricket match you know is everybody playing by the same rules or are there two sets of rules same rules <laughs> not only that for example let, let's take a uh i take there, there's one chapter in the fifth canto that makes these you could say cosmographic claims about buloka all these things now sadaputa you know richard thompson who i am quite sure was the greatest scientist that ever joined the hari krishna movement and um he wrote a book in which he shows that the numbers given in the fifth canto of the bhagavatam and you know these concentric islands and seas and so on actually are a uh, astoundingly precise description of the solar system long before the the western science knew it so one thing we have to do is when we read shastra and this is theology now is that we need to have a properly informed uh hermeneutic hermeneutics means when you're approaching this, let's say a sacred text when you're approaching a sacred text what are the what are reasonable principles of interpretation for example the bhagavatam says that eclipses occur when rahu this sort of renegade planet swallows the sun or the moon now first of all it would be hard to show that planets actually swallow anything that's one point <laughs> and also you know if if eclipses occur when rahu swallows the sun or the moon then it must be the case that he has you know serious indigestion and burps up whatever he swallows because as we know the sun and the moon uh, continue existing right so the interesting point here is that the acharyas the great teachers in their commentary say 
obviously this is not literally what happens. And so the tradition takes that as a sort of literary, you know, symbolic thing. It's not really what's happening. And so the Bhagavatam, or in general, the Vedic tradition is intellectually very sophisticated. And the approach to Shastra is not just like a born-again literalist, the inerrant word of God, every word. That's just not Shastra. So, for example, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, which is one of our foundational texts, um, Krishna Das Kaviraj says that there are illusory stories in the Shastra. There are some stories are not literally what happened. And, and, and the stories are told for some purpose. And so if we say, okay, what's literal, what's allegorical, what's metaphorical, what is, you know, what's what? That is an academic field called hermeneutics. And so we do not have a simplistic uh, view of the world. In fact, for example, we know that in Indian history, in Indian religious history, even as much as, as near as Bhakti Siddhanta in the 20th century, that even though you have these Bhagavatam descriptions of the cosmos, you also have great teachers studying the Surya Siddhanta, which gives a sort of a modern astronomical view of the world. And so, uh, yeah, if, if we take a learned or a, a, a well-informed approach toward the sacred text, we're not going to find some big battle breaking out with science, with real science. In other words, if we take Shastra intelligently and we take science intelligently, intelligent science and intelligent Shastra can live together. Fanatical science and fanatical religion uh, are always fighting each other. That's the actual fact. Right. Thank you. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, I mean, it's already in our time, 8.46 p.m. So, uh, it's time to wrap up. So, uh, so in a nutshell, uh, do you think uh, a scientist can be spiritual? Because uh, through the practice of science, uh, they have a limitation of... Uh, proving something, they really cannot talk about God in science, but then uh, is there a hope for a scientist to be spiritual? At max oh, yeah. yeah, actually, I remember, I mean, years ago, but I, I read a statistic that 50% of the hard sciences, 50% of the scientists in the hard science, you know, not psychology, sociology, actually believe in God. So, for example, I have scientific devices like a GPS. So if I have to drive somewhere, I live in California for now. So if I have to drive somewhere, I consult my GPS. I, if I have to figure out, okay, what's the best road? What's the best road right now based on current traffic conditions, let's say to get to um, Berkeley, California. I don't open the Bhagavad Gita yeah. to look for that answer. So it's not that someone could say, well, because you are a, you know, trying to be a spiritualist, 
Therefore, you obviously you don't have a GPS. Obviously, you don't go to doctors. You don't go to the dentist. You don't. I mean, that's absurd. Of course, I go to a good dentist. Of course, I go to a good doctor. Of course, I consult, let's say, technical experts if I need help with my computer. Of course, I use my GPS. So, so just as it would be absurd not for me to take advantage of science because I'm a you know so-called spiritualist, it is equally absurd for a scientist not to take advantage of spiritual science because that person is an empirical scientist. It's absurd. These are two areas of knowledge. So you mean These to say two... that, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt, yeah. No, uh, go ahead. You mean to say that uh, science and religion, they're not really non-overlapping magisterial. There is an overlap. Well, I would say not an overlap, but for example, let's say I'm a geologist, I still need the help of biologists. It's like saying, is there a, is there a, is there a contradiction between biology and geology? between astronomy and, uh, I don't know, you know, and chemistry. Of course there's not. So this idea that somehow there is some permanent warfare going on between two sciences, metaphysical science and physical science, is a historical aberration. And we can trace where the idea came, because if you look at the early science, you know, Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, Newton, everyone understood there are different aspects of life. And for each area of life, we have a science. And so the idea that science and, uh, let's say, physical science and spiritual science are somehow in conflict, that was a political problem. Because, for example, the church, the church wanted power over everything. And as Galileo put it, you know, they wanted to dictate not only how to go to heaven, but they also wanted to dictate how the heavens go. In other words, astronomy. And so Galileo, who was not, who was not an atheist at all, he said, look, he said to the church, you, you know, you explain how to go to heaven. That's your job. Our job is to explain how the heavens go astronomy. And so we find is that whenever there's a conflict between material and spiritual science, it's always for the same reason, because someone is lusting for power, because someone wants to be a dictator, someone wants to control everything. It's political and psychological. It's not conceptual. It's not logical. It's not philosophical. And so anyone that says that you cannot be a scientist, a good scientist, a genius scientist, and at the same time, a deeply spiritual person, is just a fool. It's like saying you can't be a good geologist and at the same time, you know, you can't be a psychologist. That's absurd. Or that if you have to choose, either you accept psychology or you accept geology. I mean, that's ridiculous. You get these, you get these fanatical preachers like that. What was that guy's like Dawkins or Hawkins? I mean, these people are fools. They know nothing about philosophy. Even that Stephen Hawkins, his latest book before he, you know, mercifully left the world, um, it was an embarrassment to science. 
because he was so like fanatical, so bitter, so angry, you know, that um, that a God that, you know, put him in that condition. That his latest book, what? No, sorry uh, to interrupt. Probably he changed his position from his early writing from being agnostic to be kind of a, an atheist, hardcore atheist. Is that so? I, I don't I don't know his biography, but it could be true. I mean, I just don't know. But what I do know is that his latest book was an embarrassment to many scientists because it was so illogical and it was so outside the realm of science just because he was so desperately anxious to kill God. So therefore, when we see like a major conflict between science and religion, we're dealing with human psychology. Exactly. And actually, I would say uh, pathological human psychology, we're not dealing with strict logic and science. Yeah, right. So uh, this reminds me uh, one question about uh, a very famous, uh, rather infamous uh, movement, the intelligent design movement. The proponents uh, apparently were uh, deeply religious people. They had uh, no novel ideas of uh, bringing the picture of God in a rational way. No, no, no. Actually, I mean, I had to forgive my interruption. But I just have to say a few things. First of all, um, the opposition to intelligent design is fanatical and irrational for, for several reasons. And, and because, first of all, because there's such a powerful enemy of scientific hegemony. I heard an interview on public radio here with the president of Caltech, you know, which is a super school. And um, he was just a, he was making an ass out of himself. Because he was conflating, there's, you know, there, there are flat earthers, there are the young earth people, there are these fanatical scientists that want to prove that, that, you know, science proves the literal word of the Old Testament about how old the earth is and all, which is basically comical. But then there are intelligent design people who are top thinkers and philosophers like Stephen Myers. I've seen him literally mop the floor with many scientists in debates. He has his PhD from uh, Cambridge University, one of the top universities in the world in philosophy of science, and he makes utter fools out of these people. And so if you read, read the Wikipedia article about him or about intelligent design, it's all just religious fanaticism. And, and uh, so the point is, on the intelligent design idea, there are learned, brilliant scholars, and there are fools, and there's everything in between. So this president of Caltech was conflating it all as if, no, there's just one group of people, which was, first of all, he was cheating, he was ignorant, he was a fool. And for anyone who's well-informed, he made an ass out of himself. And, and so the, the, this constant attacking and stigmatizing and ridiculing intelligent design, this is all just political and, and this fanaticism. In fact, there are people advocating intelligent design who are brilliant scholars and they're actually proving their points. So uh, therefore we should, it's just like, for example, you know, if you fanatical people in any country, 
whether it's, you know, Germany, World War II, whether it's in India, this country, America, you know, sometimes certain people are stigmatized and, and you know, and, and they're so, yeah, because basically for fanatical political reasons, materialists want to destroy the intelligent design movement, even though most people know it's true. In Germany, which is supposed to be an educated country, most people, a strong majority of the people in Germany believe, and a strong majority in America, that you cannot reasonably explain the world as we know it simply by material explanations. And therefore the only, and so intelligent design is not a religious theory. It's not a religious theory. It is a philosophical proposal that when you have a universe which at the microbiological level uh, is, or let's say life on earth uh, is uh, all about information transfer, that information probably has a source. It's analogizing the universe to everything we know about human inventions. It's philosophically much stronger. It's microbiologically much more rational. And so therefore this war against it, trying to demonize it, you know, it's it's all nonsense. It's all religious. This is just like this is it's it's like Hitler's you know information minister, who basically was in charge of disinformation. And so there's this huge disinformation campaign, uh, which is all for political reasons. It has nothing to do with philosophy and science. Often uh, people, yeah, sorry. yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt here. Uh, oftentimes, people talk about uh, when they uh, really bash uh, this intelligent design. So, uh, the one point they bring out is uh, the irreducible complexity that they advocate. They uh, often people say, even the religious followers, they say that we do accept an intelligent creator, the God, but the way intelligent design movement put up uh, in as a scientific theory. Uh, as uh, something to be rationally verified, God being rationally verified in the lab kind of thing. So that is... No, 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 no. That's a complete misrepresentation. Okay. That is complete false propaganda. First of all, there is not one intelligent design thing. There are different groups. And the, and the ones that I find interesting are done by top scholars with degrees from the best universities who regularly make a, a complete make complete fools out of scientists in public debates. That's the first thing. Secondly, they never talk about God. God is not a component of intelligent design theory. And therefore to say they're trying to prove God is simply false. They may believe in God, but an argument is judged by its own merit. You can't reject a scientific argument because the scientist, let's say, goes to a Methodist church. If a scientist publishes a paper, you can't say, well, even though all the science works, it's still not true because he goes to a Methodist church. That's ludicrous. I, I mean, I mean, the, 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 just the sheer amount of nonsense and illogical, just nonsense that's going on. These are not rational arguments. Intelligent design at, at, at the better levels, they never talk, they don't talk about God. 
They don't mention the word God. They're talking about microbiology. They're talking about anatomy. They're talking about science. And actually, whether or not they're intelligent, there's intelligent design is not a theological issue. It is not a religious issue. It is a philosophy issue. It is a philosophy of science issue. And therefore, these you know, fanatical materialists, fanatical materialists, they need to come into a neutral arena, which is called philosophy of science, and try to sell their toxic product. Because when they go into the, when they go into that neutral arena, which is philosophy of science, they regularly make fools out of themselves. And ironically, most of the scientists are not well trained in philosophy. <laughs> they, they, they've never taken a philosophy class in their life, most of them. And that's why they make complete asses out of themselves when they, when they give their pseudo-philosophy. If I'm a priest and I start talking about microbiology and I actually have never studied microbiology, I'm going to make a fool of myself very quickly. What makes you a fool is not being religious or atheist. What makes you a fool is speaking publicly about things you know very little about. That's what makes you a fool. And so the issue of intelligent design, it is a philosophical issue. It is not a religious issue because there could be an intelligent designer who is not God. In fact, there actually is. His name is Brahma. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, so therefore, when you, when you hear these arguments, which I understand you're just devil's advocate yeah. or, the, or, the, or the fool's advocate, when you hear these arguments, what you see is here's a bunch of people who are not making scientific claims. If you find a dinosaur bone somewhere and you carbon dated, fine. Who's, you know... They're very intelligent design people are not arguing against carbon dating. But when you say, how did that creature evolve? That's, that's not science. Unless you can prove it. You can't prove it. You can prove that there appears to be some, you know, anatomical or uh, microbiological correlation between, let's say, this creature and that creature. And so therefore, it seems to be a somewhat reasonable assumption that the development of this creature is somehow related to the development of that creature because they share so many features. That would be, you could say within the realm of speculative science, it's not, it's not proven science, but it's, it seems like a reasonable working hypothesis. But if you say that this creature and that creature both evolve without any information coming into the system from outside the system. That's not science. Because not only do you have, not only do you not have a shred of evidence, it's practically inconceivable what evidence would even look like. It's very hard to understand.